HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you. Once again, you've tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we have a jam-packed show for you today. We're going to be joined at the top of the show by Julie uh, Gouldinaire. She is a Maryland organizer for Food and Water Watch. And then in the second half of the show, we'll be talking with our friends from Food and Enterprise, Wenjay Lin and Erica Dorn. So definitely hang tight for that. But before we jump in, uh, I want to put out a little food for thought. I was doing some traveling uh, down in Florida over the weekend. So uh, spending a little time in the airport magazine kiosk, as one is wont to do when traveling. And I, I couldn't help but notice, um, as I'm sure most of you out there have also noticed, uh, it's the you know annual Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition hit the newsstands this week. Uh, cover girl Hannah Davis making her debut at the front. But you might be wondering why I'm talking about that on the Farm Report. The other thing that was on the cover of the magazine was the location of the sh- of the shoot. They were out in Blackberry Farm in Wallen, Tennessee, for the shoot. Um, the, the farm, uh, you know, you can visit the Sports Illustrated website and they have a whole video about the shoot. They were going for a country elegance, a kind of Downton Abbey meets meets the countryside. Um, and it was just kind of a surprise to me because we're familiar here on the network with Blackberry Farm. You know, they won uh, Best Chef Southwest in 2013, Joseph Len, uh, Outstanding Wine Program this last year. You know, they raised chickens, sheep, orchards, all kinds of really interesting stuff, and now um, can add to those designations uh, a shoot site for the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Um, and they're in, in some good company. Um, also making their debut in the in the edition this year was Woodland Lavender Farm out in Yamhill, Oregon. And 
Castello di Amorosa in Calistoga, Napa Valley, a vineyard out in Napa. Just something I've been crunching on. Would love to hear your thoughts, uh, what this might mean, the, the intersection of bikinis and farms and food, a little bit unexpected, um, and, and something, something to chew on over the next course of the week. But uh, moving on to more serious matters, I want to welcome Julie to the show. She's on the line with us from down in Maryland. Julie, thanks for joining Thank you so much for having me. So we are checking in with you today to learn a little bit more about two new bills that, um, according to the recent Food and Water Watch press release, will bring equity to farmers and bay restoration efforts. So these bills were introduced uh, in the Maryland Senate uh, earlier this week. Can you give us a little update on, on what they were and why we should be concerned about them? Sure, of course. And before I actually go into elaborating on the bills, I'm really pleased to announce that we have these two bills, the Bay Tax Equity Act and the Farmers' Rights Act, being introduced today in the Maryland House as well. Um, So I'm very excited that these bills will be introduced in the Senate and the House. And we have Delegate David Moon and Delegate David Frazier-Hidalgo introducing the bills in the House. So um, Delegate Fraser Hidalgo, Delegate Moon, and Senator Madaleno are all my Valentines this year. <laughs> I really appreciate their leadership. So these two bills, they're, they're very different, but they really go hand in hand, and they're meant to bring some equity and some balance into a system that we view as pretty broken, um, which is the poultry industry on the eastern shore. And let me be clear when I say the poultry industry, I'm talking about the large, the handful of large corporations like Purdue, um, not small family farmers or not the contract farmers who work with them. So we're talking about corporations here. Uh, the Bay Tax Equity Act, this is actually a new version of legislation that we introduced last year. And the idea is that we are asking these large corporations like Purdue to contribute to the Chesapeake Bay Restoration Fund to help clean up the enormous amount of waste that their factory farms produce. So they would be uh, paying a $0.05 per bird fee into the Chesapeake Bay Restoration Fund. And, you know, we think this is a long time coming because Maryland residents like myself and small business owners throughout the state, we all pay, pay the flush tax to uh, help clean up the Chesapeake Bay. And companies like Purdue, they are paying the flush tax as well, but they're not, they're not being asked to pay any more than, let's say, a small restaurant in Fells Point, Maryland. And that business, or me as an individual, we may produce a couple hundred pounds of waste a year. And then if you look at the poultry industry, they're producing close to 1.5 billion pounds of chicken manure every year Um, and not assuming any more responsibility, financial or otherwise, for cleaning that up. So we think that's pretty basic. You know, it's your mess. You should take the lead in cleaning it up. Uh, the, The second bill is the Farmer Rights Act. And this is really exciting because... In doing research about the, uh, these large companies and their business models, you know, we've been pretty horrified to discover that their contract farmers 
are not really doing so well. So we're looking at companies that are reaping billions of dollars annually. And yet you look at their contract growers, and these are the people that actually grow their chickens um, for the companies. If they don't have off-farm employment, so if they're not holding down a second or third job, 71% of these contract growers are basically living below the poverty line. And we think this is absurd. Um, We've also found that they have really almost no negotiating power with these contracts. And this is really important because for many agricultural communities like the Eastern Shore, there's really only one major industry, and that's the poultry industry. So it's not like there's a lot of choice about who to work for and and what to grow. So the the Farmer Rights Act has many, many um, protections for farmers, uh, transparency clauses, so the contracts are easy to read and understand. Um, It also provides protections for them to be able to openly discuss their contracts, to discuss work-related issues, um, and to even get some money back if their contracts are terminated. Um, They could recoup some of the capital investment they've put in. Because a lot of farmers, when they sign these contracts, they're going hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Uh, and the, the final thing it would do is dismantle the tournament system that um, it's a tournament system of pay that these contract farmers are participating in, which basically means that they're being paid in relation to their performance to each other. And this sounds fine and fair enough, but there are so many inputs to that system that the farmer doesn't control. The Purdue supplies the baby chicks, they supply the medicine, they supply the feed. The farmer doesn't control any of that. So let's say if they get um, a flock of sick baby chicks, then they may lose out on their profit for that entire flock to no fault of their own. Wow. So it sounds like covering covering a lot of ground and i i would just it you know i was pulling some facts from the maryland.gov website around the the poultry industry and and these are from 2013 but they were stating you know within the state uh 305 million um animals meat animals meat chickens were grown in the state that Mm -hmm. year um, it's 1.6 billion pounds of of chicken. So no small um, no small feat making shifts even at the margins with these industries um, can have some pretty big impact. So we look forward to kind of staying in touch with you and and following these bills as they move through the House and the Senate down in Maryland. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great. So kind of on, on that. That same vein, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, accounting for the real cost of food production. And, and this seems like a real case where there is some movement to to make the folks who are responsible for the production pay that pay that true cost. And and finance is uh, a big topic around agriculture and something that we're going to be chatting about on the rest of the show as we look to explore and learn a little bit more about the Food and Enterprise Conference that's coming up later this month. Uh, the conference will run from February 27th through March 1st. Um, for folks who aren't familiar, uh, Food and Enterprise is a social impact, mission-driven event dedicated to promoting understanding and collaboration amongst multiple stakeholders. 
uh, farmers, entrepreneurs, consultants, funders, investors, everyone um, kind of coming to the table to talk about how do we finance a better local food system. So I'm really thrilled to have Erica Dorn in the studio with us today because, Erica, you kind of so uniquely have worn all these hats, the farmer, the consultant, the funder, the investor, and you've been working with Food and Enterprise since its inception. Is that right? Yes. And not close to wearing all the hats, but there are a few of them that I've, I've tried on in the last few years, for sure. I think you're being a little modest, but <laughs> I, I'll let you have it. So why don't we give folks uh, a little run of show on, on your background, because, you know, you've been involved with Slow Money, you teach at Baruch, you work with a farm out in Staten Island, you do financial consulting. How should folks kind of like position you as we're moving through the rest of the conversation? Sure. I would say all around, I'm an advocate for small business. Um, in particular, I focus on working with food and farm businesses, both here in New York and in the Bay Area. And I'm particularly interested in, in a lot of the uh, lessons to be learned between these parallel food economies being developed on both sides of the country. Um, so I, I'm genuinely curious about all aspects of food, and, and I've dug really deep into how capital can be both social and economic capital can have a huge role in changing our food system. Uh, so, Cool. So we are also going to be joined uh, momentarily by uh, Wen Jae Ying. She's the program director for Local Roots, and she'll be sitting on one of the panels during the conference. Um, so, so we'll hang tight and, and connect with her shortly. But Erica, you've done some of the programming, but also some of the fundraising for Food and Enterprise. And you know, initially when Food and Enterprise was conceived, it was run as a project through the Food Book Fair, um, where you know, we here at the network, we've been involved with them um, as well. Why was there the shift to make food and enterprise its own separate thing? Great question. Um, if, if you, if those of you who have heard of the Food Book Fair, it's a really exciting cultural, more culturally food focused event that happens at the Wyeth Hotel. Um, we incubated food and enterprise incubated within that conference, and it was very clear from the onset that that it was a different audience, uh, really focused on small businesses and investors versus food book fair that has a much broader mission around food culture, authors, uh, chefs. Um, so I would say the distinction is uh, the small business owner and investor um, have a have a different agenda between those two conferences, but they're incredible sisters, I, I guess you could say. Yeah, so it's kind of like the ideal. Um, scenario where you like start something as a small thing and it grows to like stand as much like I think what is the hope for the outcomes of, of food and enterprise it's more than just a conference it's a space where people are actually doing real work exactly real connections are definitely made and, and exactly last year we had the food and enterprise conference within the food book fair and it was you know sold out many weeks ahead of time over packed amazing connections made and we knew that we we needed more space and, and to stand alone so this year we brought it to industry city and for those of you who haven't been there it's just an incredible innovation space where many food businesses are are growing and growing their wings and, and taking off um, beyond that a lot of um, manufacturing businesses in all sectors are t are involved and in, and in growing in industry city so it's a it's a perfect home to host the food and enterprise conference um, overlooking the entire city it's, it's incredible like sitting at the nexus so what can well, like what can folks expect um, you know what if they decide to attend the conference like kind of what's in it for attendees and and like can you maybe give us some like highlights from your perspective for folks who are particularly interested 
in kind of enhancing their like finance know-how? What, what should they be looking at? Sure. So I'll give a quick overview of the three-day conference. Um, so for Again, as, as Aaron mentioned, it really is for entrepreneurs, both farmers and food entrepreneurs, investors, any stakeholder in between, whether you're a consultant working in the food, uh, food impact space or food consulting space, food systems, um, funders uh, from a banker to an investor, um, you name it and everything in between. Also, you know, we have pe- people like Etsy involved, Akiva.org, NYBDC, who is a big player in, in helping fund uh, food businesses uh, up and down the Hudson Valley and Long Island. Um, and yeah, I could, the list goes on. We have Sam Adams, which is um, huge in helping fund food businesses across, across the country. Um, so just wanted to mention some of those people that are helping make this conference possible because then those companies are very much mission aligned to helping fund small businesses that are trying to grow in the sustainable food space. So to highlight the, the days, on Friday we have what's called our Entrepreneur Clinic, and it's being kicked, that day is being kicked off by Judy Wicks. Judy Wicks wrote a book called Good Morning, Beautiful Business. If you haven't read it, I would highly encourage you to check it out. It's a great book about how a business like this, um, like, like a restaurant business, can grow deep inside of its community and so it really challenges the idea of scale. Uh, she runs a big organization called Bali Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. She actually started that organization. It's like West Coast, right? Um, right. They're based in Oakland. Okay. Yeah. But they are this year their conference is in, in, uh, in Arizona. Cool. So needless to say, she's kicking off as our keynote. And then following that, we have these, on, these entrepreneur roundtables, clinics. And we have people like Woody Tash, who started Slow Money Coaching. Uh, folks from Etsy who are on their sellers team that can help businesses with their e-commerce and marketing, um, investors that are, are coaching businesses on how to how to perform or how to go through the due diligence process and get to the close. Uh, workshops by uh, cash about cash flow management. So that day is really focused on getting small businesses the information they need to grow. But it's important that we have all those stakeholders involved so they can see what the uh, obviously consultants are really important in coaching businesses. But also we want funders to experience that relationship as well. Um, Baldor, who's also a, a, a partner in this event, is hosting our reception along with Sam Adams beer. So we have live music and great uh, great interaction happening that evening as well. So it's a day of it's a day of networking, a day of learning from Judy Wicks, and for small businesses, it's an important day. Moving along to Saturday, we have that kicked off by Woody Tash, who started Slow Money, and we have about 20 different panel, well, 20 different events happening throughout that day. Um, also, you know, all this is taking place at Industry City. Um, things like how to uh, mission and scale. Um, Etsy's, Etsy and a company called Fair Resources are really pondering that question. So, if you're a small business, what is the right size? And, and we're actually calling that human scale. So, we're going to ponder that question over an incredible panel. Um, we have panels on um, how do you access capital for food and farm businesses and how do you access government resources for your food and farm business. Uh, panels like leveling the playing field uh, in New York City for all stakeholders that want to get involved. Um, so just to hit, highlight a few, you know, those are the ones we're most excited about. Cool. I feel like uh, in a lot of in a lot of like spaces, especially around food and farming, the conversation tends to spend a lot of time around kind of like the passion behind the pursuit and your like um, enthusiasm for a particular vegetable or your product and and this idea that like if kind of like if you build it they will come if you have a great idea if you have a great passion for something if you're quote unquote like doing the right thing um, then your business will be a success but I feel like what doesn't often work into the conversation especially for folks that are kicking off is the importance of uh, a real financial 
underpinning and really having a sense of how to actually run the business of your business. It's almost, I don't know if it's like an American thing or a kind of like, we like to talk about money, but we don't like to talk about money. Um, because you've kind of like worked in this kind of community space, like what are things that you hear often that are kind of like common fears or misconceptions? And like, what are the things that people are coming to you and they're like, eh, we kind of need help with? Do things kind of come in, in different category areas or is it pretty like all over the board? I mean, yeah. maybe you can give us a little bit of a flavor for what you hear. Oh, great. <laughs> Huge question. Yeah, right. I, I do like, I would just start off by saying that, you know, it is entrepreneurial development, but in the end, it's also human development. And it's about helping entrepreneurs get clear about what's right for them. And so if they're clear about that, that really helps align themselves with the right funding for their business. And because there's such a huge array of ways to fund your business today, it's a great opportunity to get clear because you have so many options. So for a business that's really prepped to grow and scale and wants to scale and has, you know, for in our context, the right um, measures in place to make sure the business is going to be sustainable. Absolutely, it's it's a good idea to go after investors and understand what's what are those terms and what does that look like to have an investor involved. So f coming to Food Enterprise, it's a great way to one meet investors, but also understand what you're asking for when you're when you're meeting with them because you can have you know entrepreneurial friendly terms or investor friendly terms. And of course, at the, in this conference, we really have a group of investors that are committed to the sustainable food space and, and working with entrepreneurs. Um, but it's important that the entrepreneur understand that. But there are also entrepreneurs that may not want to take on investors, and you know there are options like crowdfunding where you can use more of your own social capital to raise to raise funds to grow your business. Um, I know I often hear from entrepreneurs a huge fear of taking on debt uh, because it's not, and in a lot a lot of times entrepreneurs will ask, well, can I, you know, it's not me, it's my business that needs needs the money. Um, and it's, again, coming back to this idea of, well, it's, it's, it's human development. Your business is you, um, especially at the beginning. And so um, a lot of fear around that debt. Um, I think if you have the right tools in place, absolutely debt is needed to, to grow and can be an incredible force for growing a business. And there are a lot of great options out there, which I mentioned, um, NYBDC, VEDC. So in New York, uh, limitless options to help fund your business. Um, does that get at your yeah, part no. of your question? Yeah, okay. and it's like funny. I'm thinking about also because, I, like I said, I've been doing some traveling, and the other kind of uh, magazine that caught my eye was uh, Newsweek did a piece on uh, you know women in Silicon Valley talking about kind of the funding environment um, in in the tech space and in the startup space, and like each kind of industry having its own kind of cultural norms around like funding and talking about capital and like who are the disruptors in that space and I think we have Wenji on the line right Liz yeah okay awesome so I want to bring her into the conversation because Wenji you're actually going to be leading up a, uh, a panel um, called disrupting disrupting the supply chain to connect communities how food hubs CSAs and other business models are finding markets and money while meeting community needs um, so I want to talk a little bit about that but before we jump in, um, Wenji, you are the program director at Local Roots CSA. So maybe you can fill in our listeners a little bit on, on what Local Roots is and, and what you do. And, and then we'll talk a little bit about your disruptive tendencies. <laughs> um, hey, guys. So Local Roots NYC pretty much creates a convenient connection between our local farms in New York City. And we do this through an alternative CSA model. Um, so we have 15-plus locations throughout the city, and we kind of tweak our, the original CSA model 
better customize the lifestyle to New York City. And we also do fun events like supper clubs, token classes, and music festivals to kind of broaden that community. Um, so, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, you're coming through great. Okay, cool. Um, so, our CSE model is a little different where um, instead of the 24-week system, we have 12 weeks. So, that kind of gives people more financial flexibility. Um, people love to travel in New York in the summertime, so... If you're gone for the summer and you come back for the fall, you can still get your fresh produce from local farms through our CSA. Um, we also offer a huge variety of share options. So you're not committed just to a vegetable share, which is how most CSAs are. Um, we thought if you're a farmer, even if you're not growing vegetables, you're still working hard, you need that extra support. So we have eggs, bread, granola, pasta, small batch producers like white pot honey and, you know, chocolates, um, kind of your complete grocery bag all at one location from all sustainable um, producers. How did, how did you know you could could break the rules like that? Like, how did you know you, you could do something different than the CSA, the traditional CSA model? Um, I didn't. <laughs> I think it actually helps that I have no business background. So... I kind of just saw something that I wanted to do. Um, I've worked for farms before. I've also been a member of the CSA. Um, so I kind of just saw, to me, a missing link that I thought, why not try it out and see what happens? And that was four and a half years ago. And um, I think it also helps that I, I live in New York City, so I kind of understand the, the cooking culture here better than, you know, a farmer living upstate. Sure. So you you can essentially... Uh, be the con, but you essentially become the conduit for those those farmers because, like, when right. you're looking at uh, sourcing, uh, you know, you have to speak those languages. You have to speak to your customers, kind of in both directions: the farmers and the producers you work with, and then the folks who are are purchasing the CSA shares. Was there like a, a language learning gap for you? I mean, were you more acclimated to one side of the equation than the other? Um, I think. Actually, I think the main language barrier that I have just realized that I had was um, we started as a very, very mission-driven organization, and we still are, but it's more about um, kind of understanding our customers and our community and our farmers and understanding, um, kind of meeting both of them halfway and um, kind of, um, I would say, making compromises with this, you know, naive idea I had in the beginning. So, for example, instead of, in my mind, it's like, oh, let's have these, every week we have these 10-minute cooking demos at the CSA to create education around cooking. But people in New York just don't have that time, so why not just have some food samples and recipe cards right next to it or a two-minute demo of how to, like, quick tickle, you know? Yeah. So right. I think right. the right. language like, Not the 10-minute lesson. Really... We need the two-minute lesson here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, um, yeah, so I think that the main language barrier was, um, it's more like, yeah, understanding the other person's, the other party's schedule, I think was a huge thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We are going to jump to a quick station break, um, but we want to come back. I want to talk a little bit more about this sense of place and, and how that impacts decisions that um, small businesses, farmers, and entrepreneurs make. So hang tight. We'll be right back.
you're listening to It's Cold and Beautiful by Magical Mistakes. Hello out there, it's Steve Jenkins, I'm with Fairway Markets, White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro, well these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming you would have, and at Heritage Foods USA you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind. From healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. And we are back. We are talking with uh, two of the lovely women from Food and Enterprise, a conference here in the city um, coming up later this month. I want to talk a little bit more um, about a place. And when you're thinking about your business and building your business and business plan and finances, how where you're located can kind of change the equation. Now, Erica, I know you do work here in the city, but also in the Bay Area. And can you give us a sense of like, when your geographical location changes, how much does that change your financing options? Or, and I think in addition to that, like, how do folks get to understand their community? Especially if you're maybe not necessarily, if you're, if you're new to the area or you're new to the industry, like, how do we figure that out? Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. There isn't really a one-size-fits-all approach and so, you know, when you're changing locations or going as a business to a new location, it definitely requires uh, a big shift. And I think to understand your audience is to listen very carefully and get to know, obviously, all the, the players involved. Um, sorry, my mic's swaying. Mike, we have like a sway. <laughs> I'm like watching it like slowly float across. Right, right. <laughs> I think it's been interesting to see a lot of businesses trying to move back and forth between the two coasts and just seeing how different the uh, the culture, the food culture is. Um, it's not dramatically different, but it is different. And I think there are, like anything in business, uh, innovation doesn't have to be a huge shift. It can be a very small tweak that can make something work. So I think it's really important, generally speaking, before people launch into a huge uh, new area of business, uh, let's say geographically, that I always say they um, they don't 
they tiptoe into it, mm-hmm. so to speak. So, um, you know, getting to know, spending a lot of time getting to know the community ahead of time helps. Um, and I've seen that work well for a lot of companies coming from the Bay Area to, to, to New York and vice versa. Um, but it's very similar. It reminds me often of international development and mm-hmm. how you really have to be integrated into a community or the community itself needs to really need that. You know, need, you need to be solving a problem and that, a problem they have, yeah. that they have. And so making sure that, you know, the problem isn't the same necessarily in the, in the area, in, in every area. So understanding the root of the issue you're solving is always at the crux of being successful in business. Now you're thinking about that, like insider, outsider culture. Well, Wenjie, um, I don't know if you knew this, but Erica actually runs a CSA program out on Staten Island, um, in addition to her kind of many other hats. Um, thought it might be neat to open up the conversation between the two of you um, and, and hear a little bit more like what your curiosities might be about her system and the issues that they run into and, and kind of vice versa. Um, you know, we're obviously located in New York, but running a business in Brooklyn, Manhattan, Staten Island, any of the five boroughs comes with kind of a different audience and different challenges, uh, even just logistically. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I might just kind of open the floor up to you first if you if you have like Staten Island curiosities um, and maybe we can kind of play around a little bit with um, the CSA landscape here in New York City. Sure. Hi, um, hi, hi Wenjie. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> Good, how are you? <laughs> Good. No, I, w- I was really interested when you said you started out being mission-driven and then, you know, obviously had to make compromises. I couldn't agree more about that. Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, just to talk, you know, it's different. I, I have a sense that our CSAs are very different. One, because uh, I work with just one farm called El Poblano Farm on Staten Island, and it's a Mexican mm-hmm. farm. So it's mostly herbs and vegetables that are of, of Mexican origin. Um, and so it's very different, I think, for NJ, from what you're doing, because you have such a variety of purveyors and farmers that you're working with. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. What was the last what was the Oh, question? I'm sorry. You have such a wide variety of farmers and other purveyors that you're working with? Mm-hmm. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest distinctions. Um, and one, one lesson I've also learned is that it, it does help to be diversified. I think it's, it's great to be able to offer people what they want. And so um, with our farm, El Poblano Farm CSA, it's, um, it's always really been about uh, helping the farmer get what he needs early in the season so he uh-huh. can plant. Um, but of course, that means that a lot of our members end up getting a lot of papalo um, for many, many weeks in a <laughs> row, and they get sick of the I papalo. Love papalo. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an, I'm sure it's very nice to be able to diversify, but I, I imagine it brings its own set of challenges. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because the vegetable farmer we work with, which is Rogowski Farm, she grows a lot of Mexican varieties like papalo, but also a lot of Asian greens. And our customers, our members are always wondering, like, what ethnicity is this farmer? Um, <laughs> so it is a lot of education, you know, like, this Mexican leafy green and this Asian green, they are different, they're from different places, but you can actually cut them really similarly. Um, so it's a lot of recipe ideas and starting conversations at the CSA to see, like, what everyone is cooking to swap ideas. Um but yeah, I'm actually really interested with um, because you guys do mostly Mexican uh, varieties. How does that translate into your membership base? Um, how does everyone perceive all those things? Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, and just to kind of give background, we um, a lot of people joined the CSA because we had some 
great press after doing a Kickstarter project. And so a lot of the CSA members knew what they were getting into. They, they were attracted by the idea of that they were that they were going to have Mexican herbs and vegetables. Um, so uh-huh. I would say just generally speaking, there's, um, you know, the, there's a diaspora that's growing, a me- Mexican diaspora that's growing very steadily in New York. And so we definitely have quite a few Mexican, you know, Mexican descent CSA members. Others are just extremely interested in Mexican cuisine. And we, we definitely include a lot of recipes as well that help people understand how to use things like papalo and pipicha and pasote. Um, mm-hmm. And others, but um, so it's a very you know like any I, I would say it's very diverse in terms of membership, um, and uh, you know. But I agree that you know people can only handle so much popolo, so it's a challenge that we're <laughs> yeah, always up I'm against. I'm actually wondering if you are that kind of person that does not like cilantro or popolo. Um, what are some ideas you can give them? <laughs> yeah, and I guess maybe for the listeners just to have a sense, popolo is a is a native Mexican herb that's very potent. It kind of tastes like cilantro, but with mint, it's more potent than, than most most herbs I've tasted. It's beautiful. It actually, papalo, um, it, it essentially means like mariposas, a uh, butterfly um, in Nahuatl. Mm. And so, um, and the leaf really does look like a beautiful butterfly wing, but it's, uh, it's soapy. Some people taste it. You know how some people really just don't like it? It's like a chemical. It's like you're biologically predestined to enjoy or really not enjoy. Right, right. And so, yeah. So some people really are just disgusted by Popolo. Um, we, (laughs) we, um, we, we've done a lot of work, you know, we do, uh, tomatillo often with Popolo. It's really great for semitas, which is a Mexican sandwich, putting a tiny bit Uh of Popolo into a salad just spices it up but again you have to you have to like it um i put it in stews as well like you would cilantro um it, mm. i use it in any way you would use cilantro and and more um so i i think um I, one of the most popular ways is obviously in a guacamole and and you'll notice if you use it in a, at a party people are just, it's not the same as a, obviously a traditional guacamole and people will be, get very curious about people always get very curious about the flavor of popolo I don't know if you've noticed that. I want to um, kind of bring it back to like uh, the finances and accounting for um, accounting for your time in a business. I mean, especially when you're the founder, founder or the owner, or you're you're running a variety of programs. You know, I think one of the things that has come up uh, listening to both of you is that you are wearing a lot of different hats, and you both mentioned needing to do a lot of education for your customers. Um, videos, demos, recipes. Um, when I'm wondering, maybe looking to you to start, Erica, when you're a, a small business person, you're like putting together your plan, how do you account for the financials of your your time? And like, how should folks be thinking about that when, you know, they're not just kind of building the website and the logistics and the operating system for managing a business like a CSA, but you're also you know, an educator and a, you know, recipe maker and a, uh, you know, a personality in the business. How do you kind of think about and account for that stuff? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I I would say that in general, I I think this is a topic that doesn't come up enough and one uh, worth discussing, obviously, but I think people, uh, you, if you wanted to spend your entire day tracking your time minute by minute, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be that fun. I know a lot of professions require you do that, but what as a consultant myself, I find that um, a lot of that time that I'm doing spent doing uh, education or particularly education is time building relationships. It all breaks down in the end to building relationships. So 
it's very difficult to account for it, but uh, in general, you're building that capital, that social capital consistently, constantly throughout the growth of your business. Um, you can measure it when you see the results. Uh, for example, if you go to try and fundraise for your business and you've realized that, wow, all that time I spent educating, talking to people, being authentic, genuinely caring about the work I'm doing has allowed me to build relationships that are investing in me. Yeah. Um, so that's one way I would answer your question. Um, certainly keeping track of your time is great because you can start to track uh, where it's being best spent. Um, There are great apps out there. I personally use Paymo (laughs) to track Mm -hmm. my time uh, when I'm doing work. Um, You know, obviously uh, having having a spreadsheet where you break down primary activities that you do throughout the day because it is is worthwhile to see. You know, you may think you're only spending a few hours a week on education where um, actually you're spending eight hours preparing your recipe cards or what have you and, and many hours... Uh, working, you know, one on one. So um, mm-hmm. I would say check out many different tools there. But I think if you're not some, if you're someone like me who doesn't like to track things minute by minute, um, I think you'll see the results in in real time. In real time. Mm-hmm. Well, Wendy, kind of turning it over to you, because um, one of the things I know I struggle with in my role as the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network is there's some tasks I just like more. Um, you know, so there's always kind of like, how do I like negotiate the things that I'm naturally going to like want to do, but not avoid the critical things to my business, the business that I'm running, the organization that I'm running. How do you kind of manage your time in your role as program coordinator? Because I know you do so many different things. Can you talk a little bit about how you balance that and and maybe give us a little insight into what are your kind of like favorite or least favorite, um, job tasks? Oh man. Um, so it's, it is kind of funny trying to figure out how much time to put into your organization, how to get paid for, because um, I think as a small business owner, we're, we're lucky that I love everything I do. I mean, every day I go to work, I love it, so I kind of still consider it to do work. But then you also have to consider that everything you think you're going to do is going to take twice as long. Um, so for the things I love to do, I do it the second I wake up. And pretty much everything I don't like to do, I'm doing at 2 in the morning. <laughs> um, but so I, I have a fan of apps. I organize everything I have to do um, kind of by, like, most important to things that can kind of take a little longer. Um, and I set reminders to myself. So I think just being really organized and finding a way to organize your work is super, super important. And setting a lot of reminders because when you run your own organization, and you're on your own boss, no one's telling you to do anything. So you have to have multiple ways of reminding yourself to make yourself do it. Yeah, I, I definitely would, would echo that. Although I would probably inverse my strategy. I, I think it's a Walt Whitman quote, it's, you know, or maybe, no, actually I think it's Mark Twain, where he's like, eat a frog first thing in the morning, and then like you have nothing to fear for the rest of the day. So I <laughs> oh, always... <laughs> you're a much better person than I am. I always try. I always try to do the like dreaded task at the beginning of the day. Um, but I, I do like um, this idea of integrating kind of technology into managing your time, setting reminders, and like really, I think as a person who runs an organization or a business, understanding that look, you got a lot going on, and you're not going to be able to keep it all in your head. That is a fantasy world. So making, uh-huh. making use of the tools you have. And we have just a few minutes left, and I wanted to um, turn it back to you, Erica, to talk a little bit about 
One of the things that I think is one of the most exciting parts of the conference, which is the, the pitch competition, which is what happens on Sunday. So maybe you can give folks a little flavor of, of what to expect from that. Sure, sure. So that's the final day of the conference. Um, we have quite a lot packed into that day, and it's um, kicking off with the Lexicon of Sustainability, who is a... Uh, a writer. Um, he's done some incredible work around speech and words in this in the sustainable food space. So not to give away too much, just keep you slightly intrigued. Um, it, it'll be an inspiring uh, opening day on Sunday. Um, we have seven different businesses that are pitching at the competition. Um, and we have a panel of judges uh, from Ellie Truesdale from Whole Foods. We have... Um, Matt Stinchcomb from Etsy, I believe, is on the panel. We also have uh, NYBDC, um, and we, we have, um, uh, well, quite a few. I won't list them all. But check out our website, uh, foodenterprise.com, for that full list. Um, and the businesses are given uh, less than 10 minutes, around fi- five minutes, to pitch their business. And they've, given some, they've been given some time and, and preparation. Some of these businesses haven't necessarily done a pitch, but most, mostly all of them are ready for investment. So that means that they have reached a certain level of growth in their business within generally two years of operation. So at that point, they're, they're ready. They're primed for investment. And so we have uh, you know, an audience of investors, also people like you, you know, me who are more on the technical assistance side of things, interested in seeing and helping these businesses get investment or facilitate connections that are going to help them grow. Um, and so the judges will give feedback. They will listen to all seven pitches, and then we're being, um, we'll have a, another exciting speaker to close up the day. And throughout, we have a uh, meat space, which is a huge uh, mar- farmer's market that we're hosting inside, food and farm market hosted inside of the conference center. So companies like PyCore and Radical Farm and uh, you name it, uh, food and farm businesses with great food um, happening at Industry City. And if you haven't been out there, it's just an incredible space. So um, besides the pitches, we have you know, networking and keynotes. So it's a nice wrap up from the conference. And I should have found this out ahead of time, and hopefully I'm not putting you too much on the spot. But do you know, is there going to be a hashtag for folks who are following via Twitter? Yeah, we've been using, um, well, we have uh, all of our handles on social media are Food and Enterprise or Enterprise Food. Check out both of those. Um, You know, there's no official hashtag at this moment, but I think get creative. Whoever creates it first will latch on to that, (laughs) um, be the one to coin it. But I think something like food and, you know, F&E or food and enterprise, food for good, invest in food. I'll let you guys get creative. Um, Tweet at me, E.L. Dorn, L. Dorn, and I will, um, I will make that our official hashtag. That's awesome. I think for me, you know, definitely think talking again about the kind of technology that gives us new opportunities to access previously unaccessible things. I love the Twitter hashtags for following conversations at events like this, especially for folks who are listening outside the New York metro area. Um, well, Wenjay, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really great having you both on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. So for folks, uh, just to recap, because I know it's a jam-packed show, you can uh, learn more about the Sports Illustrated swimsuit models by visiting si.com and check out the great stuff they're doing down at Blackberry Farm or the uh, Lavender Farm, that's Woodland Farm, out in Yamhill, Oregon. Um, Follow our good friends at Food and Water Watch. It's foodandwaterwatch.org. They do lots of excellent work. I'd highly recommend getting on their listserv. They send out great alerts and announcements about what's happening in the world of food and farming from a national perspective. 
Um, definitely stay in touch with foodandenterprise.com. You can visit them at www.foodandenterprise.com. You can find out more about Wenjay and her work uh, via Local Roots. They are localrootsnyc.org. And Erica, what's your Twitter handle one more time? It's at E-L-Dorn, D as in David, O-R-N. Awesome. Once again, thanks for everyone listening. This show, like all 39 of our weekly programs, is available for free. You can visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you want to support our work, which I hope you do, click that Donate tab, become a member. Also, if you enjoyed the program, subscribe. Um, get, get the great shows like Farm Report and others delivered directly to your iPhone or iPad or Android device um, through iTunes or through Stitcher Starmers. That's a mouthful. Stitcher Smart Radio. Um, both great apps for listening to all the great shows on Heritage Radio Network and many others. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.